Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite food writers. It's about all of life through the prism of food and this week in the last of this mini-series on matrescence, I'm with mother of four and wife to Britain's most famous farmer, Helen Rebanks. There wasn't a break in the weather when those winds came and those great big snowdrifts came. Um, so we couldn't, we were pretty cut off because we couldn't communicate with the rest of the world. Once the phone batteries went, they went. James Rebanks' phenomenal success with his books, The Shepherd's Life and English Pastoral, as featured on Cooking the Books, changed the way we look at farming. Now, Helen's beautiful book, The Farmer's Wife from Faber and Faber, looks at the values of an old fashioned way of life rooted in hard work and mothering four children on their farm in the Lake District. I began by asking her why she chose that title, that pitch. So, yes, Jilly, I was very intentional about the title because I feel it's a, a hugely underrepresented voice in modern life, in our modern world. Um, society and culture has lots of people farming and lots of people doing farming, but um, I didn't feel at any way that I was seen in books and and stories and TV, etc. And yes, there is Helen there, but I like layers in my work. I've got an art background and I wanted to sort of poke at, at the title of The Farmer's Wife as much as celebrate it. You know, we quite often think of it as an invisible kind of role. Oh yeah, and, it, and it's hugely stereotyped, isn't it? Um, you know, the wife staying at home and baking and looking after the kids, which is a lot of my work, but I'm also somebody that cares deeply about all sorts of different matters, um, socio-political things and stories and literature and art and music. And I wanted to kind of look at that with the title as being a conversation starter as much as anything. In this mini-series that I'm doing about matrescence, I love that answer. I think that mothering is the most important job in the world. We are responsible for the next generation. The values, the time that we spend on instilling our values, on being there, on being present and being valued as mothers is possibly the most important thing. Uh, I've got two girls, you've got two girls and two boys. And it's really, really important that we change that story. And I think you've done it absolutely wonderfully. But it is a very old fashioned take on it. And I'm, I want to start quite early on with your food moments. Your first food moment, marmalade, is actually about the women who have made you who you are, uh, set in a very old fashioned, unchanged kind of world. Tell us about this. That's right. I wrote the piece about marmalade. Um, it For me, it's the p- first piece of writing I've done uh, as I s- started to think about creating this book. It very quickly became clear to me it wasn't about standing on the chair and stirring the pot and learning about food. There was lots of things going on in that messy, sticky kitchen. But what was going on was a dynamic between my mum and my grandma and r- a relationship there that mum had moved into big old farmhouse she didn't have any previous background in um looking after a kitchen or cooking for a lot of people um she was really learning the ropes very very quickly um when she married my dad and came to live there and my grandma was helping her 
sort of <laughs> in a kind of quite traditional way that this is the way we do things we make marmalade at this time of year the oranges come in and and then we have a stock for the rest of um the rest of the year and Farms follow a very seasonal pattern of work and a very seasonal pattern of food in the home. And mum had to learn that. And it was my exploration in writing about that was trying to find out who these women were and what who I was almost through that. Um, and as I developed, as I worked through scenes of my life in the memoir, I was able to look at the decisions I've made along the way. And yes, to live what looks like from the outside a very traditional life um it looks like I don't have a voice it looks like I'm living you know with my husband kind of doing all the outside work I mean inside but the truth of it is we're very much a team and we we have an equal understanding that we bring lots of different things to the table um and we work out all sorts of challenges together it's a very hard life. You know, you live up in the Lake District. You do go into some extraordinary elemental moments in this book where the wind and the rain and the snow is absolutely coming at you from everywhere. But it is absolutely your choice. And the way that you talk about those layers of the women around you is very much like that as well. It's very real, very hard. And, you know, we, we're very poetic and romantic very often about the granny skills and, you know, the learning from your grandmother. But actually, this is resilience, isn't it? This is reality. You have to make use of waste. You have to do all the things that, you know, we have romanticised a little bit. In one of the illustrations in the book, you've you've got a pile of cookbooks. I know that you're very interested in, in cookbooks. What do you feel about the kind of the the narrative that comes out about food from your very unpretentious background? Oh, that's a great question, Dilly. I um, love cookbooks. I think I lose myself in them and, and love reading um, cookbooks as much as cooking from them if they're really well put together with stories about food and past and people. Um, I learned to cook a lot myself from watching a lot of TV chefs, um, particularly Ready Steady Cook was on every single day after school. And I was totally hooked on what, what was, what could you find out the fridge and how could you make a meal with that? And that's basically my life today. Um, <laughs> and cookbooks, I, I think really well put together story like cookbooks are wonderful. I do struggle with the celebrity kind of things that I'm not always sure if the chef on the title is the person that's done all the work behind the scenes. If I'm honest, um, I'm wondering always what's, how's that happened when they're extremely busy and they're presenting programs and, and doing all that. And I do struggle with quite a lot of Instagram perfection food. Um, I don't eat perfect food. I, <laughs> I love to go to a restaurant where it's presented immaculately or really deliciously put together, you know, and it's a feast for the eyes. But I cook real food that I put on the table and everybody dives in and we get on with it. And I think it's, I make sustaining meals, I would describe them nutritious and sustaining. Um, so I do think food has got a bit out of hand in certain certain social media um yeah depictions of it 
But you did grow up with your mum making good old British food, but the meat looked a bit grey. And you did elevate that. And that was the influence of the TV chef. Yes, I would say absolutely. I wanted it to look better than it did. And I don't think I appreciated the produce from the farm that we had at that time, um, how good it was. And I was seduced probably by packages of all sorts of different things and flavours and new ingredients coming in that we didn't have as kids. Um, As I've got older, I've learnt to value much more good food from the land and how incredible the produce is we have from British farms. And that is the Rebank story. And we'll go into that in a minute. But let's get romantic. Let's talk about your second food moment, which takes us right into your lovely relationship with James. And when you got together, you were 18 and he was 20, 21? He was 21 and I was 18. I saw this young guy in a corner of his farmhouse kitchen reading books and I was intrigued, really. <laughs> well, well, James has been on the show and, and we've, we've heard his wonderful sort of, he, he is a, a really unusual character, which is why he's grabbed our imagination. He tells the story of the land in such a beautiful, poetic way. And you're very interested in beautiful writing and he's very interested in beautiful writing. And it's quite extraordinary that the two of you met in such a tiny little corner of, of the Lake District, but you did. And you were reading Camus and he was reading you Russian poetry all sounds absolutely beautiful you painted and watched French films and he read books all the time and the first meal that you ever cooked for James was something really quite exotic actually wasn't it Spanish chicken stew which I made last night and it was absolutely delicious fennel wonderful exotic vegetables but he he didn't go for it did he I didn't really know that he didn't like a lot of flavour and he'd ate very, very plain food as a child. And he hadn't really liked the stews and casseroles and the mints that his mum had served up and survived a lot on cheese sandwiches and crisps, which uh, I'm now learning feeding to <laughs> two boys that are very plain eaters. You know, what a struggle that is as a mum. How some kids just don't really want any flavour. They just have a super sensitive palate and then... Um, I think it's just uh, slowly, slowly introducing flavours and textures and different foods in. He didn't like a lot of food at that time when I met him, but he's probably more adventurous than I am now. Um, He eats everything, which is a complete relief. (laughs) What I love about that food moment, though, is it's a great metaphor. You know, you were trying to express who you were on the plate as well as the canvas and in your imaginations. And there's a mismatch. You know, you're a little bit more exotic. Uh, You're trying things out. He's not going for it. And you're realising actually that what you're choosing is uh, quite a plain life. But you're signing up for it anyway at a very young age. You know, isn't it amazing the leaps we make without really understanding what our lives are going to look like? How on earth did you know what you were setting yourself up for? I didn't know what life was going to turn out or be or anything else. And I think I I was just totally hooked on James and our relationship together and making a life that was colourful and interesting. Um, And I wouldn't say that 
the farm life has ever felt plain to me. Maybe the food might have been a bit great at times and certainly challenging with the weather and, and the demands that were under my over the top of my parents making a living. Um, but I saw that, yes, I wanted to escape the farm in some way and create an interesting life, but I saw a lot as I left the farm in when we lived in Oxford, a lot of other ways of living that didn't appeal to me. They didn't appeal to me in the disconnect between people and disconnect between food. And there was no community in a city um, that we lived in for a short time. And I started baking cakes and I found through making and serving cakes in this small cafe, huge sense of pride and pleasure in my work that I hadn't felt doing any other kind of work Um and I, believe me, I tried a lot. I was all sorts of different jobs at, um, to make ends meet at that point in our, you know, early relationship together when James was studying and we were away. And I think that when we came back home, we we just tried to make a life together that was of our own, um, creative and interesting and challenging and and pay our bills just like any other young couple. Um and it's got us to where we are now. And I think that's, it's, it's still extremely challenging, but it's extremely rewarding and really exciting. Yeah. I mean, there's a real commitment, isn't there? On every level, there's a commitment to really following your dream, uh, with the farm, uh, finding your expression in the things that you really, really care about. And also, you know, that you mentioned that a little bit about the contrasts. It's the juxtaposition of the Oxford University life and all those people who were really entitled and the perception of, of a glamour that really wasn't very glamorous at all. It might have looked very shiny, but wasn't very golden to you. And it's about finding out who you are by through what you don't want. You knew you really wanted to be a mother as as well. And, and having a miscarriage at 10 weeks at a time when people didn't talk about miscarriages. I mean, I had three very close to each other between my two girls and nobody talked about it. And it really was a, th a thing. I mean, so many people have miscarriages, but they didn't talk about it. But it was that miscarriage that really made you realise how much you wanted children. Can you tell us a little bit for this matrescent series, how that felt to be so alone with such an extraordinary experience? Yes, yeah, I really did feel alone. Um, it was just James and I knew at that point and, um, I survived by walking an awful lot and just kind of one foot in front of the other, at, uh, one day at a time, really basics and, and cooking helped as well. Um, making food for us to both enjoy when he got back from long hours because he was doing different jobs and, and helping on the farm with his dad. Um, and it, it did feel desperately sad. There was days that I just thought I'm never going to be able to have children. Um, like there was something wrong with me and, and it was isolating. I'm much more like aware now the conversations opened up much better. Um, that people have more support and people should definitely talk about it and, and realize, I, I mean, it's so common and, and so sad and it's it's hugely impactful on your life um when it happens um but the pull to become a mum was sort of visceral really I couldn't describe it any other way it was like 
so important to me that any interest I had in anything else just fell away. Um, and once I had, I, I was extremely lucky to have a healthy pregnancy and a little girl um, quite soon afterwards. And once I had Molly, that was me. Um, I didn't exactly know how challenging that would be. Um, being a new mum at 27 and just kind of learning in the deep end, really, being thrown in the deep end. I didn't have any friends with babies. Um, I don't think I'd held a newborn baby before I had my, our own and brought her back from the hospital that first night. And James and I just looked at each other going, what do we do? <laughs> um, and he, yeah, there started my journey really into just looking after these four incredibly brilliant uh, young people that I have in my life. I'm super, super lucky. Well, I mean, before we get to the fourth, I mean, you know, when you had Molly, you had baby bees pretty much straight afterwards, didn't you? And at that time, James decided to actually develop the, the kind of the world that you were going to live in. So he moved you into the stone barn with three children. Oh my God. You know, and this is James's dream at that point. You were busy with the kids. How was that to really put absolutely everything in and make life pretty damn uncomfortable? Uh, we are talking about the north of England with all of its elemental weather. How was it to just completely say, okay, James, I totally believe in you. I'm going to go with your dream here. I think there was moments where I just thought this is far too much and it was um crazy. I think James has has lots of brilliant passionate ideas and big dreams and I generally feel like I'm the one that's making the the nuts and bolts of it happen behind the scenes all all the time and um we did it together. It was hard. And I think that part of writing the book was for me to pour out that struggle onto the page and kind of put it, put it to sleep really. And just say, we did that. And we live in a beautiful place now. Our barn is gorgeous. I have the kitchen that I always dreamt of. And we have space and fields around us. And, and we're really making a life together for the kids here. But I won't ever, <laughs> I won't forget how challenging it, it really, challenging is like an overused word. <laughs> um, lo like lots and lots of late nights working on things and early mornings and, and difficult conditions to live in. But lots of families go through these what crazy projects that to try and make a life. Um, well, hang on. I mean, let's talk about the the beast from the east. I mean, a lot of us will probably remember that incredible storm. But tell us from your point of view, what happened? So when the snow came, I wasn't exactly prepared for how much snow there was going to be. I think I'd seen forecasts of a, another bad storm. We'd, we'd just had some bad weather in the January and I'd overstocked everything. I had so much in and I was really prepared and it only lasted a few days. Um, so this time at the beginning of March, um, this storm started and the snow didn't stop and the big drifts, we were kind of hunkered down really. Um, it all sounds very 
idyllic and little house on the prairie kind of scenario where we're all, all inside with a candle and we're making some soup on the stove. But actually, uh, the challenges were that the, our generator failed and we are off grid on the farm. So we have solar panels on our roof that were entirely covered in snow. So our generator failed. We had no electricity and all sorts of issues of getting out to the sheep. Um, the quad bike broke down and uh, Tom was just a few months old at that point. So I've got a baby in my arms and I'm trying to keep jolly for the rest of the tribe because the, the other kids were just like, can we go sledging? And it was, it was too bad. Um, there wasn't a break in the weather when the, those winds came and those great big snow drifts came. Um, so we couldn't, we were pretty cut off because we couldn't communicate with the rest of the world. Once the phone batteries went, they went, um, we don't have a landline and there was no electricity. So yeah, we were just trying to figure out a way of getting through it and see when we could get out. And we were, um, after a few days, our neighbor dug us out with his tractor. We didn't have a tractor at that point. So we just made the best of it. And then I realized when I watched the news afterwards, that people were getting airlifted supplies in and such like um, all over. Uh, <laughs> it was pretty awful. Um, and we did have moments where we wanted to kill each other because everything was too stressful. And I think when, when you're up against it, the nearest person to you, you take it out on, of course you do. I mean, you do say that you you become monsters with each other and that is the reality. And this, your third food moment is the microwave dinners, which actually is a saviour. And it is about, you know, the, the, it's in the biggest sense, it's about the time poor narrative and how, you know, people do turn to cheap, convenient food. But let's put that in in kind of context with when things are really hard, when you I mean, you say it all, when a neighbour had to dig you out and you've got four small children. Tell us why you chose that third food moment to kind of illustrate what happens when the chips are down. I chose that moment because I, in the book, because I think that we need to give ourselves a break sometimes and that Yes, my ideal is that we all eat extremely well, good, healthy, nutritious protein and vegetables and great um, food. But I'm I'm a realist, as you say. Um, we need to cut ourselves some slack and find some easy fixes sometimes. And there's there's lots of ways of of doing that. Um, whether it's a boiled egg and a bit of toast or some beans or something simple. But yeah, um. I'm a mum. I know that everybody like wants different things at different times. Um, and we do need to cut ourselves some slack. I'm as busy as anybody else with the jobs that we have on the farm. And yeah, I'm a bit of ag advocate for British farming and try and buy the best you can buy. Um, but also those moments when we can't do it, don't be too hard on yourself. There's a wonderful moment where you actually, um, compare yourself with the the running mum um tell us about that and and the big reveal oh so that's a story at the end of the book where I am looking at taking the kids to school we're running late um and I just feel completely downtrodden <laughs> I probably look at myself in the glass of the school door as I'm trying to wave the kids in um pack lunches and things going in with them and 
my hair's hanging and I'm in an old coat, my jumper's bobbly and I just feel completely fed up that with my lot really at that point and I see another mum running along the road um all in a gym gear you know nice bright colored trainers um looking fit and looking like she has it together and I'm thinking how has her morning gone <laughs> so <laughs> that she can get out on the road and be running and I'm not a runner um I I, I just wrote that piece about feeling completely miserable at seeing somebody and thinking their life was, they had it all together. And then later on, I realised that um, she was raising, she was running because she was raising money um, for a charity to help uh, families with uh, infant loss. She'd lost one of her twins at birth and I didn't know. And I realised just how quickly I judged that situation and it made me feel um I'd I'd looked at that wrong and I hadn't had a sort of bigger picture in my mind that lots of us are doing lots of different things and we're all struggling with something um at some point and yeah just to try and I wanted to share that story to just say none of us know what each other's going through. Always be kind. Yeah, absolutely. Be kind. Your fourth food moment is about purpose in mothering. And I wonder if you picked up this word mundane from Carolyn Steele's Sitopia like I did. Yes. Yes, I did. did. I did. Tell me about that. My fourth moment um, was baking a birthday cake for my um, second daughter for her her second birthday and I had the girls in the kitchen Molly would be about four and be baking with me and making a great big mess as it always does with young children in a kitchen um, and they were decorating this butterfly so we got all the different colours of sweeties and uh, icing and made it so pretty and they they really had done a work of art with a bit of help and we'd had a lot of fun doing it and I went upstairs to bath them and left the kitchen downstairs and they ran off because they were covered in icing and really sticky um had the bath and came I came downstairs as sort of James arrived back from work and the dog had eaten half of the birthday cake by reaching up we had two springer spaniels at that point and reached up and and munched half of it um from the table and I just (laughs) um wanted to scream and cry and just uh yeah the life just stopped in a second and I just was like what are we going to do there's about 40 people coming for a birthday party tomorrow and this was the centerpiece um and I share that story because it, it's it's really about it wasn't the birthday cake and the eating of it it was the making of it it was the messy making and the connection with the kids that I had in that time that was the most special bit it didn't matter that the cake got eaten and we had to rely on a Colin the caterpillar the next day um from the shop it was about doing things with the children that however messy they learn, they feel connected to you and loved and that you were doing something special for them, however imperfect it was. And tell us about the mundane. The mundane jobs that we do as mums. 
um, and dads all the time that the little things that we do for our loved ones, they're not seen, they're not really appreciated 95% of the time. Um, but when I learnt that the word mundane comes from the Latin, I don't know how you say it, mundanus, um, of the world, that the little things are of the world. They're the most important things that bring us all together. And it just made me want to end my book with that point that I value them. I see them. I see other people doing these things for their loved ones. And I appreciate anything that's done for me. Um, and it brings us all together and it is of the world and it is the most important work. Tell us what it feels like to be two published authors, the two of you who are so young and so dreamy about literature and art. How does that feel? Well, it's it's an incredible achievement from both of us that James is published by Penguin and I've got um, Faber. And it's like a surreal dream some days when we think about it like that. But I, I know how much hard work has gone in behind the scenes to make these things happen. Um, I know the sacrifices we've made. We haven't really had a social life. We haven't had holidays for a long time, you know, bits and pieces of holidays when we could. Um, and we've, we've worked long hours, night and early mornings, um, to, to really speak up for the things that we care about. And hopefully with my book being published, uh, it's, it's going to help other women see themselves and and the people that do the work, the the caring, the domestic, that this is a good life. This is an important way to spend a life. I think I held the modern world with one hand away and said, I don't really like that. I want to do this. And I want to champion other people doing that as well. Thanks for listening. And do check out my Substack for more from Helen in Extra Bites. I'll see you next week.